You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Well, what an incredibly inspiring video. Maybe a bunch of different emotions go through when you see something like that. I think sometimes when we're seeing, hearing, reading about conflict in other parts of the world, suffering other parts of the world, you can feel helpless. But uh, what an encouragement to see that um, our small efforts here are going to help people in genuine need on the other side of the globe. And just super proud of our Every Nation family in Poland and Ukraine and uh, just the, just even their, their faith and their hope and their joy coming through in that video. So uh, for those of you joining once again, welcome. My name is Richard, if you don't know who I am, and we're going to be kicking off a new series. But before we get to that, it was the year 2004. Do you remember what you were doing in the year 2004? Quite a ways back. And the actor turned writer, director Mel Gibson was about to release what was called a career-killing Christian film that documented the final 12 hours, commonly referred to as the Passion, the final 12 hours of Jesus' life. The Passion of the Christ was released that year, and um, and actually here's a little photo of uh, Mel Gibson, the director, with Jesus, or at least the actor that was playing Jesus at the time. That movie went on to be one of the biggest movies of that year. It grossed over $600 million worldwide, and it had critics on both sides praising it and condemning it. And one of the harshest critics of it was that it had such extreme violence. Which is kind of funny, because like, what did you expect when you were witnessing one of the world's most cruelest forms of execution? But for our purposes, what is it about this particular man's death, this particular execution? We know history records so many. Why is it that even 2,000 plus years later, a movie like that still gets such attention, such fascination, such uh, a pull when we see that this particular death and this particular crucifixion? And that's what we're going to be focusing on uh, in this Lent season as we lead up to the Easter weekend. We're going to call this series Cruciform. Cruciform simply means cross-shaped. We're going to look at reflections on the crucified Christ. What does the death of Jesus then have to do with me now? And why the emphasis on the means of the death by crucifixion? We know that Jesus died, but why is it always death by crucifixion? What is the significance of such a cruel way to die? You know, for a lot of Christians, um, we sometimes want to skip Good Friday and move straight to Easter Sunday. We love living in Easter Sunday, and that is absolutely a big part of the story. But we appreciate Easter Sunday so much more when we stop and pause and reflect on Good Friday and its significance and everything that went through. And so today we're going to be talking about the cross and scandal. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, or if you don't have one, I'll be up on the screen, um, a passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, and just to set it up, so Paul the Apostle has planted this church in Corinth. Corinth is a city in southern Greece, and it was very much kind of like Toronto. It was cosmopolitan, pluralistic. It was a, a trade center. People from all over the world came. And it was also known for um, very skilled speakers, uh, orators who would come and for entertainment or give advice on how to live well. And uh, it was this environment that he planted this church. And now he's writing to this church. He's no longer there. He's planted and moved on. But he's writing to this church because he has a concern because there's divisions in this church. There's factions in this church. And there's factions around who speaks best. <laughs> 
aren't you glad we've moved on from all of that silliness in the 21st century church? I like this preacher. I like this preacher. They uh, engage me better than this preacher. And he's right. And he's looking at this. And then he draws them. Uh, draws their attention back to something very significant. So we're going to join uh, Paul the Apostle in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verses 18 to 25, but there's two verses in particular that will come up on your screen that we're really going to spend the bulk of our time. Uh, it says, yeah, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Remember that phrase, the word of the cross. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But here we go. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a scandal to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Alrighty. So the verse that we're going to drill in and hone in on is that one, two verses, 23 and 24. He says, we preach Christ, but Christ crucified. What is, what is this emphasis? What, what is the centrality of the cross mean to us? And so let's start there. Let's look at the centrality of the cross. So for Paul, Jesus' death and especially his death on the cross is central to the good news about Jesus. It's a bit of a paradox, but it's central. Just look at a couple of verses. We could have picked many, but a couple of verses that come through and show the centrality of the cross to his gospel. Uh, Galatians 6.14 says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's like he's emphasizing not just the death of Jesus, but this particular form of death uh, that Jesus suffered. And so when we've had over 2,000 years of thinking about the cross in a very different light to the first, uh, first few um, centuries of the church, uh, we, we don't get the strangeness or the uniqueness or the weirdness of putting the crucified Christ as the center and the heart of Christianity. Uh, I like what Kenneth Leach says in his book, We Preach Christ Crucified. He says, the crucifixion of the Son of God by one of the most advanced civilizations in the ancient world does not seem to be an acceptable or reasonable method of redeeming the world. There is something so outrageous and obscene about it that the agony in Gethsemane becomes the only comprehensible part of the whole saga. And so if we just begin to try and get a little bit into their shoes, um, what crucifixion was at their time, which is hard, but we're going to try our best to do that this morning, um, it becomes really oddly irreligious at the core of Christianity, the worship of a crucified man. Um, Jesus also made it central, made the cross central when he said to us, those who would want to follow him must pick up their cross and follow me. So we might stop here and say, well, what about Jesus' life? What about his incredible teachings? What about his ministry? And by the way, what about his resurrection from the dead? Are they not important? Of course they are. 
but consider this. So the passion stories, you know, the passion again, it's 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 a it's what's used to describe the final few hours or depending few days uh, leading up to Jesus' death. Um, account for almost a third of the entirety of all four gospels. That's a, a disproportionate weight to those uh, to that that narrative. Think about the apostle and Nicene creeds. The only word used in connection to sum up the entire lifespan of Jesus is. He suffered. And so he suffered and suffering and passion are very interrelated from the same Latin word. Um, and so passion means to suffer. And so here's the thing. It wasn't that his life, his teaching or his ministry weren't important. We know they're crucially important. But rather the conviction of the early church was that the Easter weekend was the culmination and consummation um, of everything Jesus accomplished. And so crucifixion that's validated by the resurrection, you can't have one without the other. It's kind of like a ham and cheese sandwich. I mean, sorry to be so uh, frivolous when I'm talking about this, but it's, it's like they're one in the same, like two separate events, but you can't really speak about crucifixion without resurrection, resurrection without crucifixion. Crucifixion is the defining feature of Jesus' entire life and mission, such that we interpret his life, his teaching, and his ministry retrospectively from the advantage of the cross. I love what uh, Fleming Rutledge, now you might hear that name a couple of times in this message and throughout the series, um, her book, The Crucifixion, is a massive inspiration. It's a 600 plus volume page, uh, just deep dive into the understanding, the meaning. I love what she says uh, about this. She says, the resurrection is precisely the vindication of a man who was crucified. Without the cross at the center of the Christian proclamation, the Jesus story can be treated as just another story about a charismatic spiritual figure. It is the crucifixion that marks out Christianity as something definitively different in the history of religion. It is the in the crucifixion that the nature of God is truly revealed. Think about that. It is in the crucifixion that the nature of God is truly revealed. So what is it about crucifixion that truly reveals the nature of God? Well, we obviously see the self-sacrificing, loving nature of God is revealed on the cross. We get that. But first we need to see the word of the cross as a scandal. The word of the cross is scandal because it wasn't um, what we might see it today. It wasn't a piece of jewelry you'd wear around your neck or something that you'd have as an icon in your home or even a tattoo on your body. It was something very different in that time. Paul calls it a scandal or a stumbling block. He says, we preach Christ crucified. The, the word, the original word is scandal on which we get scandal from a stumbling block. So it's incredibly difficult for us in 21st century to comprehend the cross today in its original context, but let's give it a shot. And so crucifixion then, what did it mean physically, spiritually, uh, physically, culturally, politically? Well, let me walk you through what a typical crucifixion would have been like. So the first thing was the scourging, was whipping. It was whipping with leather rods that were had um, pieces of metal and bone stuck in them um, and um, the victim was tied to a post, naked. I know we all have the, the nice loincloth of Jesus, that kind of thing, but they would typically be naked to uh, maximize exposure. And that whipping would go about and it would tear off chunks of, of flesh. Uh, after that, when that victim was very weak, loss of blood, um, they were paraded through the streets, um, exposing them to the full scorn of public humiliation, 
and the public. Uh, then they would get to the site of the crucifixion and they'd be put on their back. And so can you imagine all those open wounds getting, you know, mixing with the dirt and the discomfort and the pain of that, the intensifying of the pain and discomfort from the scourging. And their hands then were tied or were nailed. And I know sometimes we have nails uh, depicted in the hands, but they would most likely be thrown through the wrist um, because your hands just wouldn't hold the weight of the body. And we know that was what happened with Jesus. And then they were thrust upright and are hanging across and then their feet would either be tied or nailed. Now the victims would be on that cross depending some from a few hours to a few days, depending on their capacity. Um, and so one of the cruel forms of crucifixion is you really were your own executor because no one came and killed you. You just eventually you just weren't able to breathe because breathing was incredibly difficult. Your diaphragm, breathing in and out is incredibly difficult when you hang on the cross. And so to catch a breath, what you would have to do is you'd have to push yourself up on, an, on the nail on your feet and lift yourself up like that. Again, intensifying the pain, those nerve endings shooting through your body to just grab a breath of fresh air. It became agonizingly painful. We have a word called excruciating pain. It's a category of pain that is just beyond belief, excruciating. That word literally means out from the cross. From that word. So our word for excruciating pain is tied back to this particular death. And so N.T. Wright and uh, Warren Bird in their fantastic commentary on this say this, Crucifixion was a brutal and barbaric form of execution. If you had ever seen a crucifixion, and they were common in places like Judea and Galilee, the experience would have been terrifying. It would leave you with irrepressible memories of naked half-dead men dying a protracted death for days on end, covered in blood and flies, their flesh gnawed at by rats, their limbs ripped up by wild dogs, their faces pecked by crows, are victims mocked and jeered by sadistic torturers and other bystanders, while relatives nearby weeping uncontrollably would be helpless to do anything for them. And so physically we're getting a bit of a picture that this is not some celebrated event that we perhaps glory in today. But what did it mean culturally or politically in that time as well? Well, to the Roman world, crucifixion was a powerful symbol of their absolute dominance. It was a form of execution for the worst of humanity that intentionally and deliberately maximized the degradation and humiliation uh, of, of the victim. It was regarded an offense to speak of crucifixion in the presence of respectable people. That's how detestable it was and it was reserved for the worst of humanity. For the Greeks, the Greeks thought of themselves as very cultured people, uh, wanted wisdom, as Paul was, you Greeks want wisdom, they want, you know, colorful talk it's where philosophy was the birthed out of there's a Greek culture they believed that the gods were above human limitations and wouldn't have allowed themselves to be treated as Jesus was that's why it was so foolish and ridiculous to them to think of a God allowing himself to be crucified in the manner that Jesus was it was ridiculous it was foolish it was folly to them what about the Jews Jews saw it as a shameful punishment, a rejection and curse from God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 21, 23, in the law of Moses, it talks about how anyone hanged on a tree is, a, is cursed by God. So perhaps what's most surprising about this uh, physical, cultural, political understanding of the cross is how utterly godless the crucifixion really is. There's no spiritual or religious value in it 
at all. In fact, it is the most dehumanizing, degrading, humiliating, shameful way to be executed. Fleming Rutledge again says it like this, if Jesus' demise is construed merely as a death, even as a painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. And yet Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and de degradation of its God. What's going on here? So with that in mind, with that in mind, that, that very brief cultural landscape, with that in mind, now imagine yourself being an early follower of Jesus, maybe one of his disciples, and let's try and uh, paint a picture. And so Philip Rhinelander in his book is going to help us paint that picture, what it must have been like for them. If ever mortal men found a real hero on this earth, those men were the disciples. They indeed were hero worshippers. Then think of the horrid shock and shame which overwhelmed them at the cross. It was no splendid martyrdom for a great cause, no glorious conquest won at the cost of life, no epic to be sung and celebrated. No, the cross was simply an utter overthrow, a speechless failure. It was all sordid, cruel, criminal, a gross injustice, an intolerable defeat of good by evil, of God by devils. He, Jesus, their hero, their chosen leader, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was cast out with a curse upon him. Think how loyalty would burn to right this wrong, to clear his memory, to save his reputation, to prove that gross outrage had been done him, to magnify the life so that the death might be forgotten. But nothing of the kind seems to have occurred to the evangelists, the gospel writers. They literally glory in the cross. What's going on here? They glory in this cross, in this death of Jesus, their Messiah, their leader. Something that was to be seen so shameful. They take such glory in it. As Paul talked about how he boasts in the cross. He wants to know nothing except Jesus crucified. They glory in the cross because they came to see beyond its scandal, beyond its foolishness, beyond its ridiculousness or weakness. But they began to see it as the very wisdom and power of God. So let's not turn to that as we wrap this up. The word of the cross is power and wisdom. Or more specifically, we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So associating power with the crucified man, which, by the way, is the epitome of weakness, uh, made no more sense to them than it does to, to modern day people like you and me. Um, but if we begin to think about it, if we begin to look at Jesus' life, if we begin to look at his teachings, it's very much in line with his announcement of a subversive form of a kingdom, that the way up is the way down. That those that are outside are actually in, and those that are in should question, because they might be on the outside. Um, to be first is to be last. To be last is to be first. Uh, there's strength and weakness, and there's actually weakness and strength. And so it's, it's counterintuitive, but we begin to trace the plot of Jesus. We begin to see a consistency in who he was and his teaching, and how he reached out to the people that you wouldn't think normally he would have reached out to, or at least gathered as his, uh, as his army, as his kingdom army. 
but the message of his kingdom. Jesus would defeat evil by letting it do its worst to him. And part of what we see on the cross, part of what we see the wisdom of God is that Jesus was defeating, was, was, was uh, disabling the powers that be by letting it do uh, letting them do its worst to him. And so despite all we know about crucifixion, and we've just touched and skimmed the surface here, but despite all we know of its horribleness, the Gospels don't treat Jesus' shameful execution as a tragic end to his otherwise fruitful ministry, but again, the culmination of his messianic calling, something that Jesus himself deliberately and willingly embraced uh, to usher in God's kingdom, to do something on the cross, that something was happening, something significant was happening on that cross. And so we're going to spend the rest of the series unpacking what that something was and unpacking some of that wisdom and some of that power and trying to do justice to this event that still stands in our history books, that still divides um, divides time in some ways uh, and still causes us 2,000 plus years on to talk about the excruciating execution of this man, Jesus Christ. But what I want to do is maybe as a way to to kind of set the tone uh, of this first message and the rest of the series, um, to give the final word to Fleming Rutledge again from her book, uh, who sums it up really well, I think, of what we're trying to get at here. She says, Jesus Christ offered himself to be the condemned and rejected righteous one, giving himself up in full knowledge of what would happen to him. And in perfect union with his father, he went to Golgotha carrying his own cross upon which he was nailed, despised and rejected by men. At the historical time and place of his inhuman and godless crucifixion, all the demonic powers loose in the world convened in Jerusalem and unleashed their forces upon the incarnate Son of God. Derelict, outcast, and God-forsaken, he hung there as the representative of all humanity and suffered condemnation in place of all humanity to break the power of sin and death over all humanity. What a beautiful way to sum it up. And we're going to try and unpack that as best as we can. And, and for us, and for those of you that are followers of Jesus, we know we talk about Jesus dies. And, and we, we have an idea of what that means. And, and Jesus dies for our sins. That we see his love. And absolutely true. But there's so much more as well to dive into and, and explore. And, and, and we see in some ways that the juxtaposition of one of the worst events in history becomes the most glorious event. An event that the first disciples of Jesus weren't afraid to shy away. You know, when Paul the Apostle, writing to the Romans, he says something as, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's talking to something and addressing something particularly shameful in that culture. Crucifixion was shameful. You wouldn't talk about it. But here they are. They're exulting in the crucifixion of Jesus because they began to see some wisdom and power of God in that moment. And so the demonic forces thought it was the end of the Son of God, thought they had triumphed and won. But this was just the start of Jesus doing a new work, a new creation, unleashing the kingdom of God, putting things right again for us, starting with us. So reflecting on the cross, the crucified Christ um, is hard. It is incredibly hard when we, we begin to imagine just all that Jesus went through, the the the. Re- 
ridicule and the shame and and just the 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 physical and social shunning that he experienced in those few hours uh, last few hours of his life for us but in doing that something was being changed God was righting wrongs God was doing something on our behalf and so it's not easy to reflect upon that but it's so necessary that we do that because if we're to begin the to understand the unimaginable act of God's love for us as demonstrated by the cross. And so we want to rush and be an Easter Sunday people, but first we need to marinate a little bit in the Good Friday so that we can appreciate, we can come to worship and us to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of a crucified Christ because it is the power and wisdom of God. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org. 